I'm Brian Giuliano, part of the Global Fixed Income Team here at Brandywine Global. And I'm Anujit Serene, Portfolio Manager here in Global Fixed Income. And what a year it's been. Volatility is back. Dispersion across asset classes, dispersion within asset classes. Uh, and you've really seen overseas equity markets have a lot of difficulty, in particular emerging markets this year. And the U.S. Uh, capital markets were relatively resilient. Right, Equities did fairly well up until a few weeks ago. And now volatility seems to have come onshore to the U.S. economy. So, Anajit, where do we stand in the global economic cycle right now? Yeah, I think the, the thing to notice about the global economic cycle is that it's become very desynchronized this year, right? 2016 and 2017, we had a synchronized uh, acceleration in global growth. You had all parts of the global economy uh, improving, the U.S., Europe, and Asia. Uh, and that's really uh, changed this year in particular. The U.S. Uh, economic story has been a very good one, uh, certainly supported by the tax cuts that we saw uh, back in the spring, while uh, Asia in particular, but also Europe, have slowed this year. And I think, I think this has been a really important theme to, to understand about this entire expansion, not just the last couple of years, that there have been times in which the global economy has been more synchronized and other times uh, less synchronized, and it has to do with a divergence in policy between uh, the U.S., Europe, and then on the other side, China. So, Anders, you, you know, you mentioned divergences this year. So, so what's the the likelihood of the global economy resynchronizing over the next three, six, nine months? I think that probability is going up if we look out a year or so. So, where's the divergence coming from? Right. As I mentioned, it's it's the U.S. Uh, running uh, a monetary policy regime quite different from that of the Chinese. In the U.S. and Europe, we're, we're used to seeing a, a, when, when we have a recession at the Federal Reserve and ECB, they lower interest rates for several years um, as unemployment rises. Then once the economy improves uh, and unemployment falls, you see the Fed raising interest rates over a few years, right? It's a long cycle from start to finish, often lasting 10 plus years. Uh, in the case of China in particular, while they're very long-term in certain respects, uh, when it comes to monetary policy in particular, they've actually been much shorter term than one might expect. Uh, this is most evident in the Chinese housing cycle. You've had two to three year booms in housing and then busts. Uh, and that's repeated now a number of times over the last decade. And that's having a quite a big of an Im impact on commodity prices, on global trade, uh, and emerging market performance as well. So the Chinese, um, after supporting uh, stronger housing back in 2015 and early 16, have been pulling back uh, since then. Uh, you've seen a marked deceleration in, the, in property sales in China. Uh, and, and we're now at a point where they've started to go back the other way. As I mentioned, these are these two to three year cycles. Uh, and the Chinese, as we look into 2019, uh, are now shifting to um, introducing policies to support growth. So we've seen tax cuts come out of China. We've seen them lower the reserve requirement ratio for banks. They've lowered interest rates. And the currency has also uh, weakened. Uh, so all of these are conspiring for a stronger Chinese economy, uh, particularly into the second half of next year. And I think that's that's the point at which you might see a resynchronization uh, of growth globally. For almost 50-odd years now, you've had capital win out at the, the expense of, of, of labor. The rise of the 1%, um, the middle class has seen their, their income stagnate. People are 
upset, they're angry, and they're voting with that anger. And you've seen a real rise in populism the past few years. And it's it's not just here in the U.S., it's in Europe, it's in emerging markets. Um, it's spreading. It seems to be gaining traction. So what are the implications for this rise in populism in, in markets today? I think this is a very important theme. There is, uh, on, on the one hand, as I talked about, a desynchronization of growth from an economic perspective this year. Uh, but on the political side, I think what you're capturing is a synchronization of the political cycle. Uh, that the fact that the returns to economic growth have been so uneven is affecting the politics of many countries. We've certainly seen this in the United States. Uh, we're seeing it play out um, in the developed world in places like Italy, uh, Sweden, the UK. Uh, and it's manifesting in a variety of, of ways. Certainly the trade and protectionist rhetoric uh, reflects this tension, this political um, cycle that's underway. Uh, and, and the point from all of this is ultimately that the response to this that we're seeing is going to be increasingly a fiscal response. Monetary policy cannot address these sorts of issues. They have to do with equity and distribution, and fiscal policy is, is the tool that's, that's needed. Um, We've seen it used quite aggressively here in the U.S. already, whether it's from the tariff perspective or, or tax cuts. Uh, and I think as you look out, though, over the next couple of years, you'll see a lot of other countries uh, follow suit, uh, where they'll be using fiscal policy to support economic activity, um, and um, increasingly so over the use of monetary policy. So let's shift to a minute to a recent development in Europe. Uh, Angela Merkel uh, and her, her recent resignation as head of the CDU. Um, she'll be staying in place as chancellor of Germany for the next couple of years. But this is a, a, a very marked shift uh, for leadership in Europe, right? She's been at the helm of the CDU since the early 2000s. She's been chancellor since 2005. And she's been a poster child throughout Germany as well as Europe of fiscal prudence. So with her starting to shift to the background, what does this mean for fiscal policy in Europe? I think a lot of her challenges stem from a very similar theme um, like we just discussed. I mean, the scale of immigration into Germany over the past five, 10 years has been enormous. Part of that's been due to the exceptional weakness in economic growth in Southern Europe, um, and that has led to labor mobility in Europe, uh, folks moving to Germany to find employment, but it's also come from the refugee crisis. And, and the consequences of that significant movement of peoples within Germany is something that uh, the German uh, political uh, framework needs to consider. Um, to the extent that Merkel represented this inclusivity, right, and in, in inviting people to come into the country, I think that was a real positive. The fiscal prudence uh, is also a positive from a pure fiscal perspective, but some attention to how do we address uh, this, this significant increase in uh, foreign uh, population in the country. I think that needs to be addressed. That's where fiscal policy can play a role. And I think this is why, in my own opinion, I think Europe's going to really acquiesce to some of the demands from the Italian government, for example, to ease fiscal policy to support economic growth. I think there's going to be a push in that direction. It won't be a straight line. There'll be some you know, push back and it'll go, um, it won't go in a straight line. But ultimately, I think you'll, have, you'll see fiscal easing throughout the euro area over the next couple of years. 
So let's shift towards a, another manifestation of, of populism, and that's what's going on with global trade for the past 12 months now. And the good news is, on one hand, USMCA, we've got a, an agreement in principle uh, with NAFTA 2.0, but it seems now we've, we've, we've focused our attention here in the U.S. squarely on China. So, energy. What, what does that mean for the markets? What kind of volatility might we see? Well, continuing on this theme of synchronization versus desynchronization, I think we roll time back a year ago, we would have said that uh, the, the, the trade rhetoric from the United States was pretty synchronized, right? Trump, the Trump administration was very critical of the trade agreements we have with Europe, with, with NAFTA, with Mexico and Canada, China, and other countries as well. Uh, that has now changed, as you note, right? So this year we've um, seen the Trump administration develop a new agreement with Canada and Mexico, the MCA agreement. The trade stress vis-a-vis -vis the European area has also been put on ice for now as they work through some negotiations there, and so the focus has turned to uh, China. I think uh, understanding what this means for markets from here, uh, there's two perspectives that are worth keeping in mind. The first is a more near-term cyclical perspective, right? That, that uh, how might this play out over the next year or two? Uh, uh, I think we would argue that the, there's a lot more concern around trade now priced into asset markets uh, and to the extent that you get even a modicum of improvement in the relations between the United States and China, you might see a quite a positive outsized reaction in, in uh, asset markets. Uh, we think the probability of that is probably rising um, with the midterm elections just around the corner here. Um, once we get through those, we think that uh, the Chinese will have a clearer sense of who they're negotiating with. The president, of course, won't change, but they need to know what Congress will look like to understand what can get passed uh, through um, the legislative body. So, so I think we're closer to a point of, of both the Chinese and the U.S. having a clear set of rules to work uh, within. Um, and I think the other important piece here is that the equity weakness we're seeing in the United States, um, we think likely reflects how this trade rhetoric uh, or this trade pressures is beginning to affect uh, U.S. companies and the U.S. economy as well. Uh, to the extent that up until the beginning of this month, or rather the end of the third quarter, uh, U.S. equities were sailing through uh, as if this didn't affect them at all. I think the Trump administration felt emboldened uh, to remain quite firm on their demands uh, of the Chinese. Uh, I suspect that's going to change now uh, as we look forward, and there'll be more of a real negotiation. I think that'll take place. So I think, I think the probability of some near-term resolution is going up, whether that happens at the G20 summit a little bit later uh, this year or, or turns into really the early part of next year, I'm not sure, but I think that probability is rising. I think the second perspective, though, is the long-term perspective, and that is that uh, China's broader rise in the global uh, sphere, not just as a global economic power, but as a military power. I think the tension between the United States and China on that front, I think that's a little bit more structural, uh, not least because of the very different styles of governance. Right? One of the areas that combines both the military uh, issues as well as the trade issues is the fact that there's still a significant share of the Chinese economy that is state-owned. And to the extent that those companies are uh, involved in economic uh, transactions around the world, I, I think there is concern about the United States and other uh, countries that there is this blurred line between what's a private and what's a public entity in China and how they're participating in global uh, economics. Uh, so I think that's a longer-term issue. I think that's 
that I don't think gets resolved anytime soon. But on the, on the trade side, which is more relevant for this economic cycle and for asset markets, the probability of a resolution is rising. And that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. And please don't hesitate to contact us if you have any questions.